Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. I'm Richard Roper. We're going to talk about the business of journalism and movies because this is a very special anniversary for not a really well-known film, I don't think, or well-remembered film, but a really important seminal film from the 1980s about one journalist's story. And it's spectacular. We'll talk about it in just one moment. Cool. Plus, the Thursday 3 and what not to watch as well coming your way. But let me tell you this. The Roan Roper Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. And since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has been partnering with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. It all drives your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. To live in Chicago, you have to learn that you only survive by understanding your opponent, Dr. Porter. First, you have to remember the number, 911. That's the police. Now, the line will be busy because the rest of Chicago is trying to survive just like you are. Second, never touch anyone on the street. They'll think you need help and they'll kill you. And for God's sakes, never smile at anyone. They'll think you're gay, in which case, don't call 911. They'll book you for an obscene phone call. Fourth, Never cross the street when you hear an ambulance coming. It's very dangerous because it's you it's trying to run down. That's John Belushi from a movie called Continental Divide, which is now celebrating its 40th anniversary, September 1981. Continental Divide starring the late, great John Belushi. And, you know, Ro, I just wrote uh, an appreciation piece for Continental Divide because it has a, a very, very dear place in my heart for a number of reasons we'll get into here. People talk about the film career, John Belushi, just a little more than a half dozen movie roles. You know, people think about the Saturday Night Live characters and the Blues Brothers albums. And then, you know, the two roles that always get mentioned, and I understand why, are Bluto in National Lampoon's Animal House, which made him a huge superstar in a role that was actually relatively small, but he swiped the hell out of every scene he was in and, and then some. And then, of course, the Blues Brothers, you know, with Dan Aykroyd, which was a monster hit, and that was a movie, that was a concert album, that was a live tour, mm -hmm. that was a Saturday Night Live character. But, Ro, I would argue that the best performance John Belushi ever gave, a really, truly grounded, authentic performance, is in Continental Divide. He plays Ernie Suchak, who is a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, which some of you might know is the newspaper I've worked at for more than half of my life. And he's loosely based on a legendary uh, Chicago Daily News, Sun-Times, and then Tribune columnist named Mike Royko, whose family, by the way, knew the Belushi family in real life. But even if you don't know about the history of Chicago journalism, just think of those old-fashioned newspaper movies where the, there's the guy with the pork pie hat, a bottle of liquor in his desk drawer, <laughs> either a cigar or a cigarette dangling from his lips. Yeah. And he's always telling the story of corruption that it could have put his own life in danger. And that's the character he's playing here. Right. And we know those guys. That yeah. was not a Hollywood invention. No. Those journalists truly, truly existed, whether it was in New York, L.A., here in Chicago, any, any major city. Those guys are for real. And so when Hollywood came a call in looking for writers, guys who lost their jobs at the newspapers, went out to Hollywood. Very famously, even starting in the 1920s, there was a very famous Chicago scribe who had moved to Hollywood to start writing movies, and the first one he wrote was about 
a journalist in a courthouse mm. in Chicago, even though the movies that came, there were four movies made from this exact same script. Yeah. But it went on to tell the story of this journalist and his, or in some cases, her, because they changed the, the gender of the journalist in some of the films. Kildy Johnson was the name of the, the character, the right. journalist. Right. Well, you see a little bit of that in David Fincher's Mank. So, you know, in the early scenes there where Mankiewicz is becoming a screenwriter and he's meeting, you know, all these other, and it was like, all right, every newspaper man in, you know, in Chicago and across the country was coming to Hollywood. Uh, what I like about Continental Divide, and I'll, I'll let people know who haven't seen it, and you can get it it's for like two ninety nine on, you know, Amazon or any of the, any of the online services. Um, the Continental Divide in question is the Continental Divide. So Belushi plays Ernie Suchak, and he's he's going after, and I love this, he's going after Chicago Alderman, Alderman Yablonowicz. <laughs> and he's a, he's a guy with a pinky, uh, pinky ring, and as uh, as Ernie Suchak writes, uh, he has his finger in another sticky city hall pie. His finger in another sticky city hall pie. So he's writing all these exposés about this corrupt Chicago alderman. I don't know where they got the idea that there'd be a Chicago alderman who's corrupt, but that's that's fiction. That's poetic <laughs> license, bro. Right. Uh, and it gets to the point where his life is in danger. His apartment explodes. There's a bomb. And so his editor, his managing editor, tells him, you got to get out of town and do something different. And you need the fresh air anyway all you're doing is drinking and smoking and getting into trouble we want to track down this when this is the, the part where it becomes a hollywood movie blair brown plays dr nell porter she's this reclusive researcher who's been conducting studies on the endangered american bald eagle mm -hmm. for years in the rocky mountains she's been on the cover of time magazine that's how famous she is according to this movie so he goes out there to pursue uh, an interview with her because she's never talked to the press and, um, of course, it's the fish out of water thing because you got this Chicago guy who buys all the L.L. Bean, you know, outfits and everything. And he's stumbling about. He ends up staying with her because he's going to get killed if he's out in the open on his own. And Blair Brown, who's a terrific actress, was actually cast because she reminded the producers of a young Catherine Hepburn. And they wanted that sort of banter, that screwball mm -hmm. romantic comedy banter. So, you know, half of the movie takes place in the great wild. They filmed in Wyoming and Colorado. The first and third parts are back in Chicago because eventually he has to come to Chicago and then it's, well, they fall in love. Will he go live in the mountains or will she come to the city? And she doesn't want to come back to the city. She grew up in Boston. So it's all about that kind of star-crossed love affair. But then it really has so many great scenes, Row, about the world of the Chicago newspapers in the early 1980s, which was pretty close to the world of Chicago newspapers, as you mentioned, in the 1920s. Uh, you know, right. uh, the opening shot is of the Chicago Sun-Times building, which was actually built architecturally to look like a barge. Somebody thought because it was on the river. So they said, let's make this look like a barge. It'll be seven stories it's in the middle of a bunch of skyscrapers. It'll be nondescript and gray and kind of ugly. And won't that be cool? <laughs> uh, and they filmed a lot of the scenes in the Chicago Sun-Times newsroom. You see these ancient computer systems. ATEX was the name of the system. And the keyboard looked like something out of the Flintstones. And you could pound on it and then little green letters would come up. And you could even get a message from your editor. See me in my office. You know, you could do that instant kind of messaging and everybody in the newsroom is answering their landline phones, uh, working the notebooks with the pencil, mm -hmm. and smoking cigarettes. Right. And I started at the Sun-Times only about five years later, and almost everybody who's a background extra in this movie was actually there because they were all working journalists. So it really captures all of that. 
Uh, spoiler alert, the Sun-Times eventually, the property was sold to uh, Donald J. Trump, who built a big skyscraper on that site. My Sun-Times is now in another building in another part of Chicago. But that was the building I walked into for many, many years, and you'd come by all the time, too. Yeah. You knew it very well. And it just gets all those details about what it was like to be a reporter in the 80s. It gets all that right. Yes, it does. And it also gets the dingy yellowness of oh, the newsroom because the smoke was a constant feature in that newsroom for 30 years or however long they oh, were yeah. there. Yeah. And when that was going Horrible. on, it, it was like it was like an ashtray. It was like, it, you know what? Like people have like that nicotine stain on their fingers. That was the color of the Sun-Times newsroom. And I think because specifically of that. So it does get all of those elements right. And you know what's really funny? Another movie that came out in approximately the same time mm. was Crocodile Dundee. And Crocodile Dundee was essentially the same idea of a film, you know, fish out of water film yeah. and unlikely romance. And, yeah. you know, it was inverted, though. How can our two worlds ever reconcile? Yes, you know? right. Yeah. And he was the outdoorsman and yeah. she was not. And, and, and all that. And, and I think it got swallowed up in that. So if you really like Crocodile Dundee, you go back and you watch this. It's a really smart interesting again beautifully acted and you do see john belushi in a totally different way than you see him from any of his other film work and you get a yeah. really really great appreciation for and how talented he was still you know just a young man uh it was only six months after the release of this movie that john belushi died in the chateau marmont in los angeles uh, and um he had gone back into that horrible lifestyle because the reports from Continental Divide were that at first he was kind of difficult, but then he had to get in shape and he hired a trainer and you can see, I mean, he's never, he was never rail thin, but he looks, he looks pretty darn good enough to believe that he's a leading romantic man. And yeah, he's sexist. And yeah, some of the plot contrivances are just that, but that's kind of what the movie is and you go with it. But there are a few scenes. There's a lot of physicality because, again, he gets, you know, a mountain lion chasing him and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you also see that great uh, physicality and grace of John Belushi. His character, he's a reporter, so he's got the pork pie hat and he does wear a tie that's always askew. But he's got Nike gym shoes, old-timey Nike gym shoes on. So, like, when he goes up the steps of the Field Museum, there's that nimbleness that John Belushi had. Right. Or when he's swinging from the back of a train, blowing kisses to Blair Brown. It's him. It's not a stunt man. So you see the grace he had, and you also lament the career he could have had. You know, in the in yeah. the years and decades to come. Yeah. Continental Divide, though, I really really enjoyed revisiting this film. Row. It's the 40th anniversary, and the movie we were talking about earlier was the front page. Yeah, which was originally done in the early 1930s, and then redone a decade later as His Girl Friday. Yeah, right. Which turned it around and big Hollywood stars. It was one of those scripts of a corrupt jailer and a jailbreak and these reporters who really don't give a crap about what's going on because they, they spend all their day in the jail and they really hate the warden, but they hate the prisoners. And they're just, it's, they're just sitting around drinking and waiting for the story to happen. And it's such an interesting, when you watch this movie, and it was remade in the 1970s with Jack Lemmon, you know, and it was a, it's it's an interesting yeah. script. It's a great concept, but when you go back and you see that at this time, when this when the script was originally written in the 1920s, you know there were eight or ten newspapers in Chicago, and I think yeah. there were thirteen or fourteen in New York, and the newsroom. At the jail, you know, the press room at the jail was just filled with people clacking away yeah. on their typewriters and picking up the phones. And what a different era it is. 
but the characters are exactly the same. Technology different, but the, the it's all about sense... getting the scoop and digging up the dirt and beating the competition. Right, and you see that to this day. Not just with newspapers, but certainly with online. We were the first. TMZ, we were the first to break the story of this celebrity's death. And then you'll see it all the time. CNN claiming they were 10 minutes ahead of Fox News and calling the election. People still want to be first. And the human frailty behind that story that they're looking for of greed, corruption, lust, jealousy, all of those things wrapped into that particular script, which again was, you know, written a hundred years ago almost the only the the biggest difference is just in the way the characters talk because these days and even in continental divide it's like hey i got a scoop over here it's gonna be page one and back in the day i'll tell you i got a scoop it's gonna blow the lid off the whole joint you're not gonna believe this one everybody's gonna be talking about this one extra extra you know everybody talked like right no matter what no matter what the movie was babe ruth is a great home run hitter i i wonder about that because i i think about the way that language sounds, you know, like radio is always telling me to listen first and mm-hmm. then ask questions later. And there was a, a moment, you like, you think about your parents or your grandparents. Yeah. And then you think about movies from the 1930s and 20s and 30s. And you know, as soon as there were talkies, you're like, what? did they really talk like that? Did they have that yeah. quick clip? Or was that just a an affectation for film? And it's the latter. I can tell you, having done some research and, and read about this, they call it that like mid-Atlantic accent and the idea was essentially that you sounded more sophisticated almost british uh and kind of yeah you know kind of a heightened version i don't think if you have old or radio recordings or audio recordings if someone has that someone did on a gramophone of your grandparents or certainly home movies from the 50s i don't think most americans were like all right children it's time for supper come on down <laughs> we're having pot roast and peas you know but, know, but, but in the movies it was all like you know ah lindy he's gonna make the flight i think but i don't like his anti-semitic views <laughs> actually they didn't say that about later Wendy. thing that's my way of going back yeah they should have brought that up maybe but i do think times. there was that you know that attempt to kind of make everything seem like a drawing room comedy or a very sophisticated plot and certainly i think in the newsreel footages you got yeah. that you know oh yeah was, you know sure. whether it was very serious stuff from from the war or just you know hollywood's most glamorous night you did get that kind of heightened speech that gave way i think with the film noirs you know of the 40s and bogart and but even Cagney. that had a different well the sound leading ladies sometimes did but then i think you're absolutely right the big change was the revolution of the 60s and the 70s where right. all of a sudden it was like bonnie and clyde and easy rider and all the great films of the early 70s where all of a sudden the actors often looked a lot more like regular people they weren't always leaning man and leading lady handsome but also spoke in a very down-to-earth vernacular you know, another journalism movie I just recently rewatched is Salvador. It yeah, was on, right. I don't know what it was, the TCM or something, and I just wanted to stop and see it because it's it's got a really, you know, cast that you still see some of these guys, you know, working to this very day. They've changed a little bit. James Woods comes to mind yeah. immediately. And Jim Belushi. We're talking right. about John Belushi. And one of his best roles. But that really gets the role of the foreign correspondent who's yep. putting their life on the line to tell the truth. Yep. And then when you get to, like, comedies, my favorite by far is Broadcast News. Mm. But Almost Famous, which is an underrated journalism film. Everybody thinks it's about a rock band. It's really about that kid being a reporter. Cameron Crowe based that character on himself. He was a teenager when he started writing for Rolling Stone and doing interviews. And then, of course... 
people don't might not know this. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which still goes down as one of the all-time great R-rated teen comedies of the 80s, was based on Cameron Crowe's non-fiction book, Fast Times at Claremont High. Cameron Crowe was like 22, and he actually went back to high school undercover pretending to be a student. And they took the movie, and they did a brilliant thing. You don't really want a movie about a kid going undercover. I think that's been done in other films and TV shows. Cause 21 a, Jump Street. Yeah, and there's because there's a part where like I love Cameron Crowe, but it's like... Oh, it's kind of weird that you did that because then he wrote about all these 16 year olds, yeah. you know. Uh, so they turned it into a great teen comedy, but you're right about Almost Famous. It's all really about this young kid's love for storytelling, right? And we're always trying to guess. I love Almost Famous, and it's almost like I would tour the country going to Almost Famous conventions if I could. It's, Big fan of Stillwater and their hit uh, Fever Dog, right? Yeah. That That is actually on the soundtrack, which is disturbing because huh. it was all kind of made up. But the great Jason Lee. You know, terrific, and Billy Crudup, who's in uh, the Morning Show now yeah. on uh, the Apple TV Plus series. Let me, can I just talk real fast about that row as well? Because sure. we're talking about movies and TV shows about journalism, and the Morning Show. People know it was you know it was a very very expensive series, big splash when it first came out because it was Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon as competing anchors on a kind of a Good Morning America type mm-hmm. of morning television show. Billy Crudup is an executive. And Steve Carell played the kind of based, inspired at least, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but the Matt Lauer-esque, very popular fixture who then is the subject of lawsuits and complaints about sexual harassment and leaves in disgrace. And the first season of the series really explored all that. Season two is now coming out, you know, episode by episode. And I will say this, they're, they're once again trying to really reflect the time. So it's set in the first three months of 2020, where they're first starting to hear about this virus from China and the characters are reacting. Steve Carell's character is now, you know, in exile in Italy. Jennifer Aniston's character has left that morning show and there's all kinds of dynamics. I I found it, you know, to me, it seemed a little bit too much preachiness going on and some main characters as they get COVID, it's kind of hard to feel really bad for them when they're in their $27 million homes and being attended to by staffs. I don't know that it's going to be relatable to people who went through that. I'm not saying that because you're wealthy, you don't suffer if you have COVID, but, and it just, it becomes too much of a soap opera for me and not enough about the inner workings of a morning television show. Is it too soon for that? For a COVID piece of entertainment? Well, I'll tell you, it became the you know, necessity is the mother of invention. They had started filming the series season two with different storylines, and then the pandemic actually hit, and they had to actually stop production. And then, you know, the idea that Steve Carell's in exile in Italy and Jennifer Aniston has left the show gives them an opportunity to do their scenes from ro- remote locations and not interact a lot in person. Mm-hmm. So I think they almost had to do it. And they said when they returned to filming after a break, some crew members and some cast members didn't want to come back. So they had to say, okay, well, this person I think is going to have to die and this person's <laughs> going to have to leave. So I, I wow. sympathize with that, but I wish it had stayed more. Listen, they're trying to reflect the times. I think when they originally did the show, it was going to be more about, it was going to be more like broadcast news. It was going to be how TV news works mm-hmm. in this current era. And instead it's about social issues and very soap opera type uh, plot. So I was not a huge fan of season two of the morning show greatest movie about journalism though ever still to this day 
is Citizen Kane. It's the original, right? Yeah. I mean, in terms of that. I thought you were going to say All the President's Men, which would be another one that's right up there. But I think it's Citizen, really good. Citizen Kane set the template for so many movies. And I think you know, All the President's Men, if people go back, it's it's incredible. And, you know, Bob Woodward, who's played by Robert Redford, he just had a book come out. He's still he's still <laughs> right, writing about politics in the right. White House. That's true. And Carl Bernstein you see on TV all the time. Uh, and the other one I'd say in the last 20 years that I think is the best row would be Spotlight. Which yeah, is about the Boston Globe's real life investigation of the church's sexual abuse scandal, and just really gets into how great newspaper reporting comes together. A great little movie that people probably have now forgotten about. It was a darling during award season. It's really great. It's ninety minutes and get in, get out. Got to put up with the black and white. Is good night and good luck. Oh, George Clooney yeah. directed yeah. it. He stars in it. Uh, it it is a. Just brilliant look at a true story of one crusading journalist in the 1950s who stood up for America at a moment where the Constitution was being torn down by politicians who were acting in this demagogic way and really wanted to sort of follow yeah. in a in a, in a teardown of America for their own ego. It may sound familiar to some today. Go back and watch that and see what it took for the brave people to stand up against the corporate concerns of the network. Yeah, that's a great point because that was something that was going on in the 50s and we see it in a movie called The Insider, which was all about 60 minutes and uh, a guy that was going to be a whistleblower in the tobacco industry. But wait a minute, the tobacco industry has a lot of clout and they were still advertising. Right. And I will say to the credit of the morning show, they're still talking about those things as well because they're like well we have this scandal within our own network but we should report on it and get the scoop because it's our own scandal and who's going to sponsor it let's do a primetime special that constant battle between journalistic integrity and telling the story and the fact that you're still in the entertainment business and trying to make money right so if you're a young broadcaster out there and you want to see what it might take to be a hero in the business as opposed yeah. to, as opposed to being just another one of those dudes in the business who's just getting along and going along. Good night and good luck. It's an inspiration. All right. On the other side, the Thursday three and what not to watch. But first, Portillo's is known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest, tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And, of course, their legendary chocolate cake. But that's just the beginning. The menu is bursting with mouth-watering varieties of charbroiled burgers, Italian beef sandwiches, cheese fries, chopped salads, Chicagoland favorite since 1963. Portillo's also has locations throughout the Middle West and in Florida, California, and Arizona. Order curbside pickup or delivery today or ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. On Thursdays, we commonly do the Thursday 3, which are three things you should watch. But then we start first, though, with the bad news, what not to watch. And, uh, well, uh, this this one, this one uh, you're not alone in. Many people are disappointed in it. Yeah, Dear Evan Hansen, which is in theaters right now, and it's based on the multiple Tony Award-winning musical. Ben Platt became a huge star, won the Tony. For people who don't know the story, he plays a high school student who's you know a loner, socially awkward, and his name is Evan Hansen. There's a guy who's even more on the outside and is a bully 
who picks on Evan Hansen. Evan Hansen has been given uh, an assignment by his therapist to write a letter to himself, encouraging himself to be a better person, to, to get out there and make friends. And it starts with Dear Evan Hansen. This bully gets a hold of a printout of the letter and has it in his pocket when he commits suicide. This leads this bully's family to believe that their son, who they thought had no friends, had a great friend in Evan Hansen. So they meet with him. Julianne Moore plays the the, the tragic suicide uh, young man's mother. And she's like, you got to tell me more about my son. I didn't realize he had a friend. And Evan Hansen decides he's going to construct this elaborate lie and, and pretend he actually was friends with this kid he really didn't know. And he creates a whole bunch of other emails titled Dear Evan Hansen, and it builds into this whole thing. And now, of course, the whole class feels terrible. The whole high school feels terrible about this kid who committed suicide, and they start this foundation in his name. And he, could, and he even has a romance, Evan Hansen, with the, with the young man's, the dead young man's little sister who oh, believes man. that they, you know, so it's this cruel lie that's basically propagated by Evan Hansen. And there's a song every 12 minutes or so. And I, I thought when it came out as a play, Ro, I thought this is so problematic because this little shit who, yes, he's troubled and everything, but he creates this outrageous lie that's so cruel to this grieving family because now they believe that their son, who actually was just very troubled, but also a terrible, violent person now they think that he had this happy-go-lucky side and in this warmth and all these other interests and he didn't so you know they're not even mourning their real son and he and he keeps on these lies and when he finally admits the truth they really don't come down nobody comes down that hard on him he's still believed to be the most empathetic character in the story and on stage you can kind of get it in a movie with close-up shots and exteriors and stuff it just doesn't work, not to mention the fact that Ben Platt is now 28 and looks at least that age, and he's playing a very awkward adolescent. And it's one of those you know, cringe-inducing performances where he was brilliant on stage belting out these numbers and now just seems like he's in an SNL skit impersonating a teenager. It's so bad. Oh, it's man. not Cats bad. <laughs> oh, that's but a special it's level. Bad. It's, oh. it's, it really is one of the worst movies of the year and a thudding disappointment because I guarantee you they thought... We're adapting this Broadway Tony Award-winning musical. This is going to be the next Hamilton or Rent, and it's not. It's very hard to take Broadway onto the screen and make it work. It really is. Only movies about Broadway, you know, Singing in the Rain, yeah. <laughs> you know, the kind of work, or that was a movie about Hollywood that worked, you know, as a stage play and all that. But, you know, it, it's it's like... It, it, it's hard to make that transition because musicals are just, it's just odd to get the people to start singing, at least in the modern era. Yes. Every movie, you know, back in the 30s and 40s did that. And now you've got, in the 50s especially, but now you got to kind of take it into a, a, a different direction. And because of, you know, all the realism that we've talked about exactly. on this podcast, yeah. you know, it just doesn't really work. That's why La La Land is such a revelation as a film because it, does work. They it somehow worked, even though there was dialogue. But you're right when you when you think of something like even going all the way back to Jesus Christ Superstar, the entire story is told through song. There's no dialogue where they all just stop and talk. Right. And in Evan Hansen, dear Evan Hansen, there are 10 minute sequences where we're in interior sequences with very good actors who are playing it very realistically. And then when someone at the dining room table breaks out in song, you almost expect somebody else to go, "Why are you singing now?" It so it's it's so jarring. You know, there was a ill-fated television show from the 1990s called Cop Rock, which was the great Stephen Bochco, who was one of the great yeah. television producers and did cop shows. He did 
he did Hill Street Blues. He had a part of NYPD Blues production company did. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he decided, I'm going to make a cop show that's a procedural about the criminal justice system, but it's going to be a musical. So every five minutes, someone's going to sing a song about a crime. Oh, my God. Who thought that was a good idea? But he yeah. was so successful and he made so much money for his for ABC and all the other networks that he ever sold shows to that they were like, oh, this we got to take it. Yeah. Oh, see Didn't the work. musical. Very, very, very tough. All right. Tough that's what do. not to watch. What are three things that people should see this weekend? Here's a very special film that I know is going to fly under the radar. It's called Old Henry. And this row is a classic Western, an instant classic Western. It feels like something Clint Eastwood would have directed and starred in back in the 80s when he was doing Pal Rider and the outlaw Josie Wales and, of course, Unforgiven. And the unlikely star of this is Tim Blake Nelson, who's a terrific character actor, often plays like Hayseeds and Hicks and Cowboys. But in this film, he's playing a widower. We're in the 19th century, you know, in the Old West, you know, but he's at this remote kind of cabin living this reclusive life with his son, his young son who wants to get out there and see the real world. And, and old Henry, as Tim Blake Nelson is known, keeps telling him, son, you know, there's a lot of bad things out there in the world. And we get the sense that maybe old Henry wasn't always a gentleman farmer. And we mm -hmm. don't know exactly what happened. Then one day, a guy stumbles onto the doorstep of the, uh, of the farm there, and he's got a gunshot wound. And he claims he's a lawman who's being pursued by a posse of bank robbers. So old Henry takes him in tends to his wound, but isn't quite sure. Is this guy really a lawman or is he a killer who stole the lawman's badge? So it's kind of that classic thing. Is he helping the bad guy or is he helping the good guy? And then there's a posse that's going to come calling and they're going to tell old Henry, that guy is not a lawman. You better turn him over to us. And then we find out something about old Henry's past and I'm never, never going to reveal it, but it is one of the coolest, most badass twists I've seen in any movie and especially in a Western in recent years. So look for a movie. It's a theatrical release. Old Henry, it will blow you away. And there's a new Netflix offering? It's a Netflix limited series called Made, and it stars young actress named Margaret Qualley, who's already done a couple of terrific performances. She's the young uh, Manson disciple who tempts Brad Pitt and brings him to the Spawn Ranch in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That's yeah. Margaret Qualley. She plays the title character. She's a young single mother who takes a job as a maid in Seattle and also wants to be a writer. So starts uh, writing about the various houses that she's cleaning. This house looks like it has a great marriage. Oh, there's something going on here. Uh, and her mother is this crazy, free-spirited, irresponsible hippie. And her mother's played by Andy McDowell, who is Margaret Qualley's real-life mother. And, Ro, what I love about this series, limited series, uh, 10 episodes, is that it's based on the real-life memoir of a young single mother who was a maid and also had great writing talent and wrote a best-selling book about her experiences as a maid and the life lessons she learned. So, you know, it's really tough because it's all about how she's, you know, she's got an abusive husband just trying to get... Uh, into a shelter and just trying to get food stamps, but also trying to get a job for a paycheck so she could stay in an apartment with subsidized housing and people looking down on her. And she's invisible because she's a maid, but she's actually really bright. So there's a lot of down, you know, kind of downbeat stuff going on. But Margaret Qualley is so good, and she's so good playing the mother with a two-and-a-half or three-year-old where you, you just believe the dynamic there and then the dynamic with her real-life mother as well. She had that very small role in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 
And it's one of the most memorable scenes of that film, which has nothing but memorable yeah, scenes. Yeah, stole the scene. She's, she's working essentially with Brad Pitt uh, and, right. he, and holding her own and then some. And, you know, really interesting dynamic. And at number one, it's The Many Saints of Newark, yeah. which we talked about in a previous podcast, the previous podcast. You want to go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it yet. You rave about that film. Yes. But I have a question for you. Okay. It's going to be coming out simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. Yes. As a cinematic experience, what is your recommendation? Well, I always tell people if you can go to the theater, you could see it. And David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, who then was the one who came up with the idea of this origin story, is livid that people are going to be able to see this on the small screen. He actually has gone on record and saying, if I had known that, I wouldn't have done this project. This is a movie that should be seen as a movie. And I got to say, with all great and due respect to David Chase, yes, people should see it on the big screen. I think it will work very well as an at-home viewing experience because it is an origin story that led to a television series. And it's filmed as a movie and it has a cinematic look, but I got to honestly say, I'm not saying that you have to see this on the big screen. I think if you, you know, people are used to watching things at home and if you give it a respectful viewing, if you're not on your phone, Mm -hmm. if you don't, uh, you know, wander in and out of the room, you watch it like you're supposed to watch everything. I think it'll work very well as an at-home viewing experience as well. You're going to mob movie church here, right? Yeah. With the Sopranos. I mean, it's that this is as good a piece of art as you're going to find just south of the pantheon of the Godfather and Goodfellas. Yes, casino. They, they know the, those kind of stand yep. on their yep. own, but you got to look at the Sopranos and just marvel at the hours upon hours upon hours of television entertainment and information and just the all the feels that you got from watching that show and think how were they able to pull that off week after week and keep you driving through there wasn't a clunker in the bunch no there really wasn't and even breaking bad had one or two that are kind of infamous for kind of stalling the story and just to tie it all together row what i found you know fascinating lorraine bracco who played the wife of henry hill karen in Goodfellas, originally they had talked to her about playing Carmela, Tony Soprano's wife in The Sopranos, and she said, I already played that role. I wanted to play Dr. Melfi, and which is the role she ended up getting. And Ray Liotta, he says, he goes, I don't know, for some reason, he had, he, it was only a few years coming off of Goodfellas, he had played other mobsters. He didn't want to play a similar role, and he then came to regret it. And now Ray Liotta has a dual role in the many states of Newark. And I know that's a kick for him, and it's just great seeing him on screen. And he even does his famous Goodfellas laugh at one point. It's a tribute to that, <laughs> that you know, that Henry Hill laugh that got Joe Pesci then saying, you know, funny how. <laughs> so great stuff. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to see it. On our next podcast, a tribute to James Bond, because finally it's a time to die. <laughs> yes, No Time to Die is finally coming out. Daniel Craig's last film. He filmed it in 1982, I believe it feels like. <laughs> but it is the, the last Daniel Craig Bond film. Everyone's looking forward to this. Uh, we're going to talk about the film itself, but we're also going to tap into Rokan's uh, lifelong passion and knowledge of the James Bond franchise and talk about all the great Bond movies and all the great Bond villains and all the great opening themes. Oh, we have yeah. to talk about those as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, live and let die, of course. The Rowan River <laughs> Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. 
want to thank our executive producers, Renee Nelson and Tim Melanius, as well as our production director, Demita Menezes. We appreciate everybody who's been downloading, subscribing, and getting the word out. Uh, screen time. We're having a blast with this row. We're past 50 episodes now, but I feel like we're just getting warmed up. So we'll see you next week when it will be time for No Time to Die. See you next time.